There seems to be no disputing that while on board Titanic, 54-year-old Helen Churchill Candy took long walks on deck with fellow first-class passenger Hugh Woolner. A British stockbroker with apparently much charisma, but from all accounts, very little business acumen. Woolner, eight years younger than Candy, was one of a bona fide self-referential coterie of men who assisted, or as I suppose they saw it, chaperoned her as she traveled back to the United States to tend to her grown son, who had been in an airplane crash and was in hospital in New York City. She recounted some of this herself, how on walks she and Woolner, who in retrospect she would to note refer to as, quote, the two, gazed into the other world of second class, which believe me, I understand sounds on some level absolutely ridiculous now, or, quote, further across to the waves and wondered at their clemency how they wandered into Titanic's state-of-the-art gym and rode the electric camel. Yes, that's, that's actually real. <laughs> it's a real thing. How they sipped hot lemonade in steamer chairs, listened to the band late into the evenings with bellies warm from brandy. But to note, for a lot of these moments, it was not just Candy and Woolner, but Candy and this entire group of please forgive me for lack of a better word, drooling men who followed her around. Candy was a renowned author, a scholar of antiques, interior design. She worked as an interior designer to first ladies and the elite of Washington, D.C. She was a true socialite among both men and women, a bold networker, a traveler of the world, a feminist, She was quite used to, in fact, traveling on her own, doing most things on her own. Many Titanic writers reference moments in an unpublished memoir and allege that Candy went so far as to romanticize her moments with Woolner to paint their time on Titanic decks in a way akin to excerpts from a romance novel, that she recalls standing with him at the bow of the ship, quote, as her bow cut into the waves, throwing tons of water to right and left in playful intent. Her indifference to mankind was significant. How grand she was, how superb, how titanic. A few authors have gone so far as to suggest that this was some kind of inspiration for director James Cameron, that Jack and Rose's flying scene on the bow in the 1997 movie was pulled straight from Candy's account. Had he really taken the time to read an unpublished memoir? Where is this memoir? Because I couldn't find it. In reality, the forecastle deck was closed to all passengers, so neither really could be true, could it? This Candy Woolner moment, or if it hadn't been fiction, this soaked sunset Jack and Rose moment. But most importantly, in another account, she's actually completely alone on the bow. I stood at the bow alone and absorbed her spirit. In his 2003 documentary Ghosts of the Abyss, in which a haunting ghostly vision of her traipses onto the bow alone and strong looking, this is, this is how Cameron actually saw her. 
And is it possible that the long passed down narrative of her with the man at the bow, that this insistent narrative of her with men on board Titanic is just a way in which the Titanic historiography has attempted to contain this woman who by all accounts could not be contained at all? Is it possible that her romantic interactions on Titanic, if there were even any, are the least interesting thing about her? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is episode seven, the one, not the two, Helen Churchill Candy. So first, a little note on methodology. Researching individual passengers is incredibly fun, but simultaneously incredibly frustrating. In the way that we historians get frustrated, but really we're just more and more intrigued as we dig deeper, but also realize that the further we go, the less we are really going to know what's real. How you might choose one metaphorical branch to go down and then realize where you're lost in the leaves somewhere down the road that maybe something on that branch was faulty to begin with. And then you, just keeping with the metaphor, then you just tend to fall and you start over. (laughs) Because the micro history of a person, as opposed to the macro history of, you know, I'm just thinking about some of my previous episodes. So immigration and Titanic or Titanic and fiction or the social history of food or drink. A microhistory, in comparison to all of that, a microhistory has nowhere to hide. If I get one small detail about Helen Churchill Candy wrong on this podcast, someone's going to let me know, as they should, 100%. And for that person, that might taint this entire episode. It's kind of a scary process to do, to, to be a part of. The smallest details matter, the minute ones, and to feel 100% certain that you're getting someone else's life correct is just impossible. So keep in mind, as much as I tried to mine sources down to their origins, down to their core, down to their bone, there's a lot here that can be tainted, could be tainted by false memories or romanticization. Candy's own memoir, Sealed Orders, is incredibly romanticized itself. So the memories here could be tainted, not just by her, obviously, but by others that have written about her as well. And how you define tainted there differs too. Anecdotes about a person tend to become history, quote unquote, after they've circulated enough. I mean, we've seen this with Margaret Brown and Bruce Ismay. And in Titanic history, there are many, many books that have been compiled by amateur historians who, while I'm sure mean no malice, have propagated stories about people like Helen Candy without going back to primary sources enough. I won't mention the book, But in the course of researching this episode, I was a good hour into making notes from a book with a significant amount of candy content, and I realized that the author had based 
quite a few of his observations off this unpublished memoir of hers that he didn't even cite in his bibliography, which made me question whether he'd actually seen it in person, which likely means that his writing is simply born there of anecdotes or summaries he's read about the memoir from other people. And this same author had details about Hugh Woolner's life just, I'm going to be frank, just absolutely 100% wrong. All that to say, Candy is part of this branch of Titanic history of which we have so much minutia, memoirs that put dialogue, often very detailed dialogue, into these onboard first-class scenes of dinners and drinks and walks on the deck and how much could even be true? How in the world do you separate fact from fiction and and fact from memory there? Because as we all know, these two things, fact and memory, can be completely 100% at odds with one another. And there's no true objectivity, not when you have a writer, even if they were someone that was in the room, they sit down and try to write a conversation that two people had, even if it's a week later, There's just no way it's 100% correct. But here, just as I did with Bruce Ismay in his episode, I have tried my best and what I hope is most valuable, even more so than the raw facts, are the ways in which I place her life down in the context of the historical processes around her to highlight how important her life was. And not just because she was on Titanic, in fact, in some parts, in spite of the fact that she was. Born Helen Churchill Hungerford in October of 1858, Helen was the daughter of prominent New York City merchant Henry Hungerford and his wife, Mary Elizabeth, whose maiden name, I believe, was Churchill. I say I believe because, to be honest, there's a lot of incorrect information out there. Don't believe Wikipedia, you guys. No, seriously, don't. It's wrong. In many cases, even in a you know very subtle seemingly neutral entry about a historical figure it's often just wrong for her for candy's entry for example it has brazen errors including this maiden name being wrong i actually came across a fair amount of sources who had her father's name as churchill and her mother's maiden name as hungerford i did a little bit of genealogical searching to try to make sure i had it correctly and i and i think i do Helen grew up in a home steeped in appreciation for antiques and immaculate home decor, something that would eventually play a huge role in her professional life. She was supposedly descended from Elder William Brewster, a spiritual leader among the group of pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock on the Mayflower in 1620. A white ash chair belonging to Brewster, made in the turnstile of the early 17th century, was in the house as she grew up, supposedly, and it's now in the Pilgrim Hall Museum. I looked it up. I did see it. It seemed to be there. I haven't been there. Would love to go there. When I read about this, I couldn't help but think of a well-known bit of Titanic lore that scrapes that line between fact and memory. Thomas Andrews, one of the designers of Titanic, the managing director of Harland and Wolf Shipbuilders, and of course the head of the guarantee group from Harland and Wolf that sailed on its maiden voyage to quality check essentially the whole ship. Andrews was said to have been seen last during the sinking in the smoking room, staring at a painting called Plymouth Harbor. 
painted by the artist Norman Wilkinson, commissioned by the White Star Line for the ship. The painting hung above this first-class smoking room fireplace, the only functional fireplace on board Titanic. Andrews was seen with his arms folded on his chest just before 1.40 a.m. that night by Veranda Cafe steward John Stewart, who left the ship in boat 15. Thomas, though, was later seen on deck by other survivors, and Stewart's timeline is questionable, and it's all really murky. But the lore has Andrews in front of that painting of Plymouth there at the end, and it's in the Cameron movie. There's been a lot written about the symbolism there, that he's staring at this painting of perhaps the most famous British ship of all time until that very night, of course. When Helen was a child, her family moved out to the country, first to New Haven and then Norwalk, Connecticut, where she was privately schooled, attending one of America's first kindergartens. She then attended a very elite boarding schools, and before she was a teenager, apparently spoke and wrote in multiple languages, likely knew more of history and literature than a majority of the adult men in the circle around her. She was particularly inspired, according to one source that I read, by an event she went to at which Charles Dickens read aloud from one of his works. There's not a lot of info out there about her younger years, and in terms of her life's narrative, it's really at her marriage, I mean truly at the end of her marriage, to a Norwalk businessman named Edward Candy. When, she's, when she marries him when she's in her 20s, and they are married for quite a few years. But it's really at the dissolution of her marriage that we find sources definitively on her because she began really to tell us so much about herself. The couple, who no doubt lived in extreme wealth, I want to be clear, during their marriage, and by some accounts that marriage was happy for a time as they entertained in their home and gave money to the arts, participated in their community and the culture around them. And they had two children, Edith and Harold. But most sources seem to agree that Edward had a drinking problem and grew quite abusive of Helen and the children. Details pertaining to this I just couldn't find. Edward is said to have abandoned the family, but Helen's next move leads me to believe that that may not be the true story of this. She seems to be a little bit more more proactive in the process of the divorce than that statement would lead you to believe. Helen packed up her children and went to get a divorce in Oklahoma. This was not uncommon. Let me introduce you to a corner of American history you may not have been very familiar with, divorce colonies in the American West. By the late 19th century, couples had figured out that one could escape the very stringent divorce laws of the East Coast in Western territories, considered less civilized, of course, that were just eager for the revenue and and population. You could set up residence in such places as Sioux Falls or the Oklahoma Territory, and after a few months, as opposed to a year or multiple years in other places, There you go. Divorce granted. The ease of all this even attracted elite from all over the world, most notably Frank Russell, the second Earl Russell, who was tried for bigamy in the English courts after he obtained a Reno divorce 
truly already, that phrase is in the American culture, Reno divorce, and married an American divorcee. He was then known in Edwardian society in Britain as the Wicked Earl, and he lobbied long and hard for the reform of English divorce laws. I can't speak to his personal history. I didn't go down that rabbit hole, though I wanted to, to be fair. Uh, But I do know he went west to marry a woman named Molly Somerville, who was a radical feminist and a radical liberal at the time. Helen resided for an upwards of a few years, I wasn't completely clear on this, uh, in the town of Guthrie, Oklahoma, recording her apparently fairly bucolic adventures for the press, for magazines and newspapers back east where she had connections. Perhaps to the chagrin of her very wealthy family, very traditional wealthy family in Connecticut, Helen actively chose to support herself through this separation from Candy. This didn't begin when she moved to Oklahoma, to be clear. She'd supported herself since Candy supposedly left the house. And she established a writing career in magazines like Ladies Home Journal and Scribner's Monthly. In an article for Ladies Home Journal, Candy urged readers to hone their skills, for example, at empathy. Quote, if we put imagination to work and warm it with love, she wrote, we can learn much of what others are feeling. To charge forward as she did in a time when separation and especially divorce among the elite transatlantic class in New England was a scandal at best and forbidden within a family at its worst, one has to think that perhaps Candy was a master at empathy and imagination. Much of Helen's early work was geared to practical household hints and tips on etiquette, typical, quote, female topics, we'd say. But as her career progressed, she used, very smartly so, used her popularity to to her advantage and began to write on much heavier and relevant and timely issues, women's rights, childcare, education, community, government. The 1890s was a time of wild, radical, important action for the rights of women and minorities. You have to know some context here, just a little at least. And while it was progressive for a wealthy white woman who'd been born into comfort to write about these issues and to be independent, it's also equally crucial to note that Helen might have just been inspired by things going on around her. In other words, these issues were so important that they drew her in and she felt she must participate. And sometimes I think that's a better narrative to open this kind of discussion with, especially a biography, than just saying, oh, this wealthy white woman bit down to address the poorer among her. I think it's much more, I think it's crucial to talk about context this way. So anyway, here are just a few of the important moment in the right struggle of women, of minorities, that are going on at this time. 1891, Ida B. Wells launches a nationwide anti-lynching campaign after the murder of three black businessmen in Memphis, Tennessee. 1893, Hannah Greenbaum Solomon founds the National Council of Jewish Women. After a meeting of the Jewish Women's Congress, 
at the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. And that same year, Colorado becomes the first state to adopt uh, a state amendment in enfranchising women. 1895, incredibly important figure, Elizabeth Cady Stanton publishes the Women's Bible. And after it's, I'm sorry, that is the Woman's Bible. Make sure I say that correctly. And after its publication, the National Women's Suffrage Association actually distances itself from this pioneer of the suffrage movement, Stanton, because many conservative women in the organization considered her to be too radical. In 1896, Mary Church Terrell, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Margaret Murray Washington, Fanny Jackson Coppin, Frances Allen Watkins Harper, Charlotte Fortin Grimke, and former slave Harriet Tubman meet in Washington, D.C. to form the National Association of Colored Women. Said so a very, very, very important time in women's history. And this is when Candy starts to write. So back to Candy's personal history, though. A lot of these divorce laws, even in the West, from what I could tell just from doing some cursory reading, required both spouses to reside there for a certain amount of time. So likely Edward Candy could have had to participate in this process in Oklahoma, but sadly, those details are just kind of lost. The divorce was granted in 1896. Now, also remember that these earlier divorces in American history before kind of modern we call modern times, they were prior to our no-fault system on divorce. And they required cooperation between spouses with both moving to this kind of quickie divorce jurisdiction like Oklahoma or one admitting to adultery. So again, there are ways in which this divorce may have, you know, actually lived itself out that we don't know the exact details of. I also read several sources that alleged that Edward Candy had partial custody of the children at some point. We know that Edward Candy died in 1907 at just age 50 of pneumonia. We know he was a veteran. We know he was respected at least by some as a businessman. But let's just leave him here, as Helen did, in Oklahoma. Because it was also during this time in Oklahoma, through her agricultural stories about the region, and these were in journals like Atlantic Monthly and Forum, that Helen rose to fairly national prominence as a journalist and as a proponent of the government's settlement of Oklahoma. It was her interlude that turned really into anything but an interlude. Her widely discussed articles are often considered by historians to have been crucial in establishing the Oklahoma Territory's appeal to settlers, ultimately leading to its statehood a decade later. This was just the first of many times that Helen's life would directly intersect with a giant moment in American or world history. The types of moments that we view as you know, just moments, right, that we can see the clear narrative break through. But at the time, people like her were making it happen and the details of their lives. History is a timeline in our mind, of course, that's how our minds work. And it's often rather clinical, and we see it in a textbook, those notches of important societal shifts and changes. But Helen was inside so many of these. And it's a reminder that people imperfect people were inside them. In 1900, Helen published a book called How Women May Earn a Living, 
as part of Macmillan and Company's four-volume women's home library series. Guys, this book became an instant bestseller on its release in January of 1900 with rave reviews from the New York Times and lots of other critical publications. It was lauded for its common sense philosophy for women. A review in Book Buyer noted that it was, quote, descriptive rather than, rather than didactic and was, quote, bright and readable and showed a keen appreciation of current conditions and, this part's really important, future possibilities. I read part of it and I agree with all of these comments. And although I could never know what it was truly like in 1900 to be a woman, I can't even begin to imagine what that kind of codified repression and oppression felt like at that point. I do think if I was a woman reading this thing in 1900 and no one else had told me that these things were possible, that in a practical sense, I could be a woman and support myself and enjoy my life on my own. This is a big deal. It seems like a very big deal. It's 22 chapters, it's hefty, and many of them are marked as practical topics like the ideal boarding house and care of hair and complexion. And then some of them are professions like typewriting and stenography, or trained nurse, or opportunities in shops, uh, all the way up to the quote, learned professions or artists of the humbler kind. This all sounds antiquated now, but at the time, Writing about these steps, these phases you could morph through, it was revolutionary. Who was she writing to? For one, the woman whose, quote, circumstances have changed, just as hers had, and must actually earn the money with which you are to be economical. So earning the money and then also learning to be economical and smart with it. Or women who perhaps have just, quote, grown to womanhood, and on looking about with your clear, fresh eyes, you determine to relieve the family purse of your burden of support. In other words, circumstances that are completely familiar to us now, of course, that are timeless, that at the time were, though, taboo to speak of and to write of. Those who labor from relentless or caprice, aka those with family, money, need no help for success or failure is to them only an incident. Helen employed the bluntness to write, and she also points out that she, quote, won't take up the issue of women who only work to bridge a gap between school days and matrimony. So she's got a lot to say, and a lot of it is very relevant still today. At one point, she shares an anecdote of a man who ran a firm who said that he'd twice, quote, trained up a woman into a well-paid position, but he had been let down when she came to him announcing a marriage, when these women did. Candy points out that this man has a bit of a point, but that more importantly, not all women in the workforce are young women wanting to get married. Many don't, and many are, quote, burdened with incompetent husbands. Her advice is pragmatic and gloriously honest in a time when those concepts weren't as easy to come by as they are now, as easy to come by as they are now. The world is already full of workers and there is really no place for untried hands, she warned her readers. I should point out that for the sake of balance and realism, 
here, that for all that Candy was painstakingly progressive for her time, she also understood what time she lived within. And there were certainly moments in her writing that don't age well enough. They don't age well at all. Let me read one. Though I'd argue that there's a touch a touch of uh, manipulation and awareness in it that illustrates her sheer intelligence just as much as any of her other words do. Quote, if you fling demands at tired men who hold favors and don't get them, she wrote this in 1900, and this is from Harper's Bazaar, I believe, if you, quote, ask pretty, tactfully choosing the time that suits the man and never mind yourself, you are more likely to win. And so it comes to this, that you must take your choice of these two things, demand favors and go without them or win them through tact. And this condition will prevail so long as men are strong and women are charming. And thankfully, (laughs) that time is really not, that's not how we view things anymore, thankfully, although arguably it's a long way to go. So how women may earn a living is, and with good cause, considered a landmark in feminist literature. Her second book, An Oklahoma Romance, this is like a, a, it's a twist, it's a turn, published in 1901, is unshockingly a love story. And it's a story involving land holdings and Oklahoma-ness, of course. But over a century later, over a century later, from snippets that I read, and I just read snippets, I did not, I have to admit, I did not read the whole thing. It has stayed inherently readable and very human. And whether it was a fictionalization of actual people and events from her time in Guthrie, which has been alleged by many who have written about her, whether or not this was true, the book was wildly successful and brought even more attention to these settlements in Oklahoma that were emerging as potential meccas of the American dream, farming, oil, and in this book, all of it playing out in the middle of a love affair. So can't you see? A perfect storm in 1901 America, a perfect storm to appeal to the desires, maybe hidden desires, simmering in readers. And if the passion contained in the love story was from Candy's personal life, if she was inspired by personal experiences in Oklahoma, we'll never know, nor should we. It's none of our business. But as a researcher of her now, now that I've gotten to know her a bit, honestly, I... I hope it was. I hope Oklahoma brought her not just a divorce, but inspiration in every possible way. Readers and critics liked the book. The New York Times lauded its freshness, adding that it was, quote, a bit of contemporaneous history painted with form and color and has unusual value and interest. Helen never, though, wrote another book of fiction in her life. After this Oklahoma chapter, Helen moved to Washington, D.C., where she became one of the first professional interior decorators, her clients including Secretary of War Harry Stinson and President Theodore Roosevelt. Candy's book, Decorative Styles and Periods, this one published in 1906, was a product of careful historical research and absolute authenticity. As with every endeavor of hers, it seems, she settled for nothing less from herself. The book was long, intense, but in a good way, addressed trends and designs, but was also full of human interest and historical side stories, which 
I like. Helen was originally a Republican, but later supported the Democratic and Progressive parties, entertaining famously for congressional and senatorial leaders, cabinet members, and candidates of every stripe. That's how I saw it written in, in one spot. One of her closest political acquaintances was the orator and the suffrage supporter William Jennings Bryan. We all learned about him in high school history, who served as Secretary of State under President Woodrow Wilson. And while in Washington, Candy also pursued an active social life, serving on civic boards and involving herself in politics really pretty actively. Her friends ran the proverbial gamut from Brian to, on the flip side, ultra-conservative First Lady Helen Heron Taft. Her friendship with the Tafts was long-standing, despite their differing opinions on women's rights. She was also close with President Theodore Roosevelt and his wife. Two of Candy's most important decorating commissions came from the Roosevelts. She was a colleague of architect Nathan C. Wyeth, who designed one of her homes. To note, she had, just so you know, she inherited a lot of money when her mother died as well. And so not only was she making money for herself, but she was very wealthy still from her family money. And she built uh, very beautiful homes in DC. Uh, But Wyeth designed one of hers. And also she worked on several projects in Washington with him, including an expansion of the West Wing of the White House in 1909. Helen was ahead of her time here as well a bit. She was critical of manufacturers and department stores that sold cheap imitation furniture. She didn't even approve of decorators using reproductions of period pieces. The atmosphere of antiquity, which is its charm, is impossible to describe, Helen insisted. It must be felt. By reading, you may know its history. By studying, you may know its detail. But only by contact can you feel its full charm. But of course, it must be noted, her rather elitist standards here of acquiring furniture. I mean, who, how many people can actually afford to acquire very expensive real antiques. That's a very small percent was a very small percentage of people then and it's a very small percentage of people now. So these kind of elitist standards were at odds with the income of her average readers. Must we not forget that in the middle of all of this she was born of money, always had money, and despite her progressiveness, she was never, as far as I could tell, actually acquainted real with real financial struggle. Uh, She never went without the basic needs in her life. But as some writers have pointed out in their analysis of her, the educational bent of her writing and the personal touch of her aura, her tone, really enforced this commonality despite all of this. Helen's writing stressed a human element in design, and it aimed to educate the public, the average reader, on decorative arts history, perhaps more than anything. This was her aim. Candy was a trustee for the Corcoran Gallery of Art, a member of the Archaeological Society and the American Federation of Arts. She was a board member of the Washington chapter, this is important, of the National Women's Suffrage Association, which without going into an entire history of women's suffrage here, which I wish we had time for, but that would make this 17 hours long. I don't know. Eventually, gosh, 
Can you imagine my episodes might eventually get this long as I keep up this, if I keep up this pace, someone please stop me if they do. Um, But without going into a full history, just know that this organization developed into the nation's largest women's rights organization with 2 million members. Helen's connection to the cause of women's rights was questioned by some of her conservative friends, unshockingly, who warned her that it might mean having her name quote, dropped from White House guest lists, that sort of thing. Despite opposing views of the suffrage question, though, it seems Helen's friendship with the Tafts stayed very solid and she never wavered in her own convictions. In November of 1907, she served for a magazine as a political correspondent, two ceremonies back in Guthrie, Oklahoma, where she'd lived, that inaugurated Oklahoma as the 46th state in the United States, the fashions and the taste of the lovely Mrs. Churchill Candy were frequently commented on in the press in D.C. She had apparently a penchant for black velvet and ermine feathered hats and was among the increasing number of society women taking up the sport, quote unquote, of cigarette smoking, which to the elite was largely a masculine thing up to this point. I can't help but think of that scene in the 97 movie when Rose lights up at the lunch table to the chagrin of her aghast mother Ruth. Helen readily self-actualized her vanity, though, saying that while she wanted to be respected for her intellect, she had no intention of going around, and this is a quote from her, dressed like the matron of an asylum. This was apparently, you know, a commentary on how some suffragists dressed on how some of the more radical, I guess, liberal women, how that seemed to um, impact their dress. I saw this quote several places, so I tend to trust this one. In the summers, Helen vacationed at York Harbor, Maine. She went horseback riding with her son, Harold, who was now in his 20s, at Warrington, Virginia, where he kept stables, apparently. She was one of the first women in the East... I mean, I I read this. There's no way that I could um, confirm this in any technical sense, but I did read that she was one of the first women in the East to ride astride on a horse. Also here, you know what's coming. (laughs) I couldn't help thinking of Rose DeWipucator, of her wondering what when Jack Dawson suggested that she ride a horse with one leg on each side. These things were really still taboo for women then. Helen also spent time with her daughter Edith a lot. Um, She was now married, and Helen had a granddaughter by this time named Mary. She often spent whole seasons abroad as well. So when she, she's about to get on Titanic in our tale here, guys, but when she does, it's far from her first time abroad. She visited England, France, Germany. She loved Italy. In my heart, quote, she said, was abundant love for Italy and her adorable wiles. Such an interesting way to put it. On her trips, she liked to go off alone. And I saw this written about her quite often. And I think it was really important for her to spend a lot of time alone and keep that in mind. It's really important to remember that about her in terms of her time on Titanic. She would sneak away even when she was with a group, go on a picnic by herself. She liked to read by herself and she liked to paint by herself. She was content, it seems, by herself for long periods of time. She seemed during this period in the first decade of the 20th century to never stop moving. 
Her writing was prolific. She would eventually write eight books total. Candy's biggest seller was the tapestry book. And the research for it is what took her to Europe in 1912. In January, she was abroad to finalize the research, but in April received word that her son, Harold, had been in an airplane crash. Though I should note that some sources claim it was actually a car crash. And she booked passage on the next ship home. This was, of course, why we're here. This was Titanic. We can't forget that Titanic happened in no vacuum, but instead in a time of conflict and violence, in a time of a fair amount of uncertainty between the sexes and in labor and in immigration and in the racial the, context, the racial context of all of America, the Titanic sinking did not initiate a time of turmoil, as I've seen and heard too many scholars intimate. Absolutely not. Its sinking highlighted turmoil that was already not just brewing or steeping, but full-on boiling. The night the Titanic sank, as historian Stephen Beale has pointed out, a black man in Florida was lynched in Barstow, Florida. On May 3rd, a black man was lynched in Yellow Pine, Louisiana for insulting a white woman. This is 1912. This is not 1850, and not that it would have been acceptable at any time, but I think we sometimes believe that these types of horrific acts stopped before 1900, but absolutely not. The National Association for the Advancement of Color People, Colored People, the NAACP, held its fourth annual conference that year. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but on May 4th of 1912, J.J. Astor's New York funeral was pushed out of the headlines by the biggest women's suffrage parade in American history. I pulled this quote directly from Beale's book, uh, what I'm about to read. An onlooker that day said at the close of that parade, it would, quote, be impossible for an intelligent onlooker to contend that a woman's place is in the home. So walls are being knocked down, ceilings are being knocked on. Traditional gender roles were changing. Women, even elite women, were working, as evidenced by Helen's own book, of course. Divorce rates were spiking. And the idea of male dominance in a family and in a country, it was beginning to be questioned. I mention all of this for greater context, but also because I want you to think about and analyze with me why a very specific type of narrative about Helen takes root from Titanic. Every single Titanic work that I've read that's highlighted her in any way, from Walter Lord's A Night to Remember, all the way forward to monographs that have debuted in the past five years, has framed her story on board around her relationship to a group of men that apparently took her on as their personal project a group that might have included the Taft presidential aide Archibald Butt, who you may remember is one of my favorite passengers to study, and there's lots more to come on him from me, but definitely, definitely included the aforementioned British stockbroker Hugh Woolner, recently out of bankruptcy to note, and also Edward Kent, a Buffalo architect who shared her love of interior design, uh, Candy, shared a love of that with Candy, and also included Archibald Gracie, a colonel, old money, amateur historian who was on the voyage pushing his tome about the Battle of Chickamauga onto anyone that he could find. 
There's this anecdote about him, Eve, about Gracie, who, I mean, Gracie wrote one of the memoirs that's one of the most infamous memoirs of the actual sinking. And he actually died right after. He survived Titanic, but died quickly thereafter. And he's quite a character. He always seems to pop up. And there's a lot to be said about him that I don't have the time to say today. Uh, but he's a very important figure as well. But there's this anecdote about him even giving a copy to Macy's owner, Isidore Strauss, who died on Titanic alongside his wife. And Isidore sort of handed the book back over to him in the hallway kind of thing and insisted he had read the doorstop of a book. I don't think he read the whole thing. (laughs) But I want to break open this timeline for Helen. Here's the deal. We have to look at Helen Candy as a passenger on the Titanic by acknowledging that when she boarded the ship, she was an independent, wealthy, successful, beyond successful woman whose mind was on, among other things, I'm sure, her injured son. And likely none of these men, not in any significant way, her mind was likely not on them. Like Margaret Brown, who she entered a lifeboat with a few days later, she boarded the ship in a state of anxiety anxiety over the health of a family member, Brown was headed back to America because of her ill grandson. Helen boarded that ship, Titanic, without a man, and she left the Carpathia without one. That the story of her on board has become a tale of which men flirted with her and who she might have reciprocated it with is just a prime example of how women have been marginalized in the telling of historical events that define us, including Titanic. In all actuality, she seems to have been extremely aware of what her role was among the first-class males that followed her around. She acted as queen bee of a group of seven first-class passengers, this group of men that Archibald Gracie called our coterie. That's where the term comes from. He's the one that sort of coined that for them in his memoir. Because she was traveling alone, Gracie called her an unprotected lady that needed some amount of watching over. But in her own memoir, published in Collier's Magazine, Candy politely called Gracie the, quote, talkative man and seemed to get along better with, quote, the sensitive man. Likely, this is the Buffalo architect Edward Kent, 58 at the time, the same age bracket as Candy, genteel, tall, who shared this interest in antiques and design with her. He sadly did not survive the sinking. Others in the coterie were Maritz Bjornstrom Stephenson. I hesitated there because I'm so worried I mispronounced that. Stephenson was what I'll call him. But he was a 28-year-old son of a Swedish pulp baron. And there was also Irish engineer Edward Colley. They are on record as saying they wanted her to be never alone. Can you imagine? And these anecdotes have been shared by historians with no commentary as recently as a few years ago, as if this is just totally okay. But the relationship that Titanic historians love most to speak about is the one we opened the episode with, the one with Hugh Woolner, cosmopolitan British Hugh Woolner, eight years younger than Candy, but he apparently fell head over heels for her. At least that's what people say. (laughs) Research on him is completely confusing and so full of errors that I paced around my house a few days ago and swore I'd erase this entire episode. 
seriously. Glad I didn't, but I was there. And all I could surmise that seems that that is perhaps mostly indisputable is that he used his inheritance after his father's passing to found a brokerage firm. And he ended up in a quite a bit of financial trouble as a stockbroker, eventually earning a lifetime ban from the London Stock Exchange. But other than that, depending on what source you read, he was married to a British woman or an American woman, had five kids or had one kid, took care of his kids or didn't take care of his kids, sought a redemptive redemptive fortune in the American West or did not. Guys, I don't know. I have no idea. But like Helen's husband, Edward Candy, let's do something radical and let's leave Woolner alone mostly here too. Let's have the courage to do what so many histories of Titanic's first class passengers don't have the guts to do. Let's imagine that Helen was on the bow of Titanic on her own if she made it there at all. Let's envision Helen on the decks at noontime, where she'd sit and read in a steamer chair with a blanket over her legs. Let's acknowledge, as she did openly, that she'd often reserve a second steamer chair on that deck, not because she craved the company of one of these men, but because she was interested in self-protection. She was a woman traveling alone, an attractive woman traveling alone. And the second chair was best left empty with the impression that someone might be on the way or second best filled with a man who she at least knew. Sadly, women now still know this delicate dance. But male historians have often seen her only as a desired object. Walter Lord, perhaps the ship's most renowned historian, even wrote, quote, a safe guess is that she looked irresistible to her six devoted swains. After a dinner of filet mignon, they took a table together in the adjoining reception room for coffee and the nightly concert by the Titanic's band. And to be fair, this is probably true. And to be fair, Lord does also mention her feminist writing in the same set of pages, but it's just the tone. I also love to highlight the awareness she had of Woolner's other flirtations on the ship. In her own account, she mentions how much Woolner seemed to be flirting with who she called, quote, the prettiest girl. She had little names to anonymize everybody when she wrote about the sinking. But this prettiest girl was undoubtedly the young movie star Dorothy Gibson, who was on board with her mother. And if you don't know this, she actually starred in the very first film about the disaster just months after the sinking. And in the film, she wears the dress she actually wore the night the ship went down. She's a very intriguing figure. So Candy watched Woolner watch Gibson, noting that the younger girl, and keep in mind, Gibson would have been 30 years younger than Candy. The younger girl had asked for dance music and, quote, clicked her satin heels and swayed her adolescent arms to the rhythm. Helen Candy was in control of her environment. She was aware of it. She had something to say about it. Aware of those around her and their multitude of intentions. She was at that point sailing across the icy cold North Atlantic, a powerful woman and a mother headed to care for her son. 
She was a women's rights supporter who I have no doubt also had meaningful conversations on board with women like Margaret Brown, who was, not many people realize this either, separated from her own husband, JJ, and she was navigating the transatlantic crowd as a single woman as well. When the ship hit the iceberg, Candy waited by Lifeboat 6 with Woolner, who hadn't left her side since seeking her out after the collision. They went to the lounge to warm up, and at one point, a man said, have some iceberg, and dropped a piece of the ice into Helen's palm. Helen described the post-collision soiree on a deck, this gathering of oblivious first-class passengers in various stages of night dress or regular dress. They didn't yet comprehend the seriousness of their plight, and she described it as, quote, a fancy dress ball in Dante's hell. After the lifeboat order rang out, they went to their rooms, then met back up with the architect Edward Kent, who said he was concerned. And this is when she gave him these uh, very important items she had in her pocket. It was a silver flask with the Churchill crest on it, and also an ivory cameo of her mother. These are things she must have gone back to her rooms to get, but she gives them to Kent. And this means she obviously thought, as many women boarding the lifeboats did, that the men staying on board would be warmer and safer uh, on this massive ship than on one of these tiny open boats. These items were later retrieved from Kent's floating remains and in 2006 were sold at auction for, from the numbers I saw, $80,000 for the locket and $40,000 for the flask. As she boarded lifeboat six, one of Helen's feet actually wedged between two oars stowed along the gunwale and twisted, and she fractured her ankle. This is an iconic scene in the Titanic lore. This is boat six, which Margaret Brown was allegedly just plopped down into by Officer Lightoller, even though she apparently insisted on staying on board to help others. This is the boat headed by Quartermaster Robert Hitchens, who'd been at the helm of the ship when she hit the iceberg. This is the boat first-class boatman Arthur Puchin survived in because, and apparently it's Candy who called it out, uh, but some, because someone called out as it was being lowered that they only had one seaman in the boat and they needed another man. And Lightholder said that if Puchin could jump down and make it into the lowering boat, that he could go with it. I did some reading on Brown's time in Lifeboat 6, and her account, and here, here is where it's so dicey, you guys, in terms of the minute details that some sources include with confidence. It's so crazy, the amount of confidence that some historians use the dialogue from these sources that were written sometimes decades after any of this happened, but... There were supposedly whole conversations that went on in this lifeboat that are recorded. I cannot, for the life of me, endorse them. I couldn't endorse them because there's absolutely, as a historian, I know this, there's absolutely no way that anyone's memory is that good. And we know for a fact there's no recording device on a boat. So I just can't endorse it. And especially not when it's a memory coming out of such an unimaginable trauma. 
But here's the basic narrative that's made its way into the Titanic story in terms of Boat 6. In Boat 6, Margaret Brown had begun rowing, and she encouraged the other women in the boat to row in defiance, she claimed, of Hitchens, the quartermaster in the stern. If Hitchens was a bully in the way that history has written him, then he was... He was in the wrong boat. Um, there was Brown, there was Candy, and two British suffragettes, Elsie Bowerman and her mother, Edith Chibnall, who were active members of the most militant of Britain's suffrage organizations. So Hitchens apparently wouldn't move, but sat screaming their inevitable doom and stood at the tiller shouting instructions. And these memories of him are also... I mean, who knows what's real and what's not, and I recognize that. But eventually, boat 16 came over so that the two boats could tie up together. This seems to be, you know, a a true fact. But Brown insisted that they take on an extra stoker and then break free and keep rowing. And this is when, supposedly, Hitchens told her no, and she threatened to throw him overboard. I've also read it the other way, that Hitchens threatened to throw her overboard. So, it's... A dangerous game to have an opinion about that one. This scene, at least a version of it, shows up in the 97 movie with uh, uh, Molly Brown, with Kathy Bates playing Molly Brown. Helen pops up in these narratives of Boat Six pretty consistently as being calm, logical, and requesting that they row away initially as Captain Smith had ordered. And she's mentioned as caring very much about the plight of others on the boat, as being definitively on the brown side of this Brown-Hitchens interaction, as begging alongside Brown to row back for survivors in protest of Hitchens. This is the way she described the cries of people in the water that night, a heavy moan as of one being from whom final agony was a single sound. Helen recalled sitting on Carpathia after being rescued with her patched up ankle elevated and watching the icebergs the next morning, astounded at the sheer wonder and the sheer brutality of nature. Just to note, Hugh Woolner did survive alongside fellow Coterie member Stephenson. Looking over the deck that night after helping to load some of the boats, Woolner said they saw collapsible D being lowered in front of their faces and decided to take their chances, jumping down, noticing how there was space at the bow of the boat. I know I said I'd leave Woolner here, or that I'd leave him alone a while back, but I can't resist letting you know that he actually married someone else that August, another American divorcee, or at least that's what the majority of the sources say. Uh, But judging by the misinformation surrounding him, who, who knows? Helen sold her story of the sinking to Collier's. Um, It's called Sealed Orders. And this is the document that so many historians have mined for the tale of Woolner. And here I've got to let you know that that's ridiculous. Um, Obviously, primary sources, firsthand accounts are very important sources for the historian. But I got to tell you, this this account of hers is highly romanticized. Uh, She's using uh, phrases to describe people like the talkative one, the sensitive one. It's not clear who she's speaking about at times. And and while her writing is gorgeous and descriptive, it has this sort of vague quality to it. 
and also kind of a romantic, wispy quality to it. And I, there are certain, there's certain memoirs, diaries that you have to contextualize if you're going to use them as a historian. And I just think that this is one of them, which is why I opened the episode by pointing out that we don't even know what's true, even in terms of of these words that she wrote. Anyway, so <laughs> the theme of her memoirs, which is it's really just one memoir. It's pretty short, like a whole book length or anything. But the theme was or seemed to be sort of the omnipotence of God and nature and a convergence of fate of the, the iceberg, Titanic, Carpathia. Of Titanic's final moments, Candy wrote, and in it, I hate to admit, Candy actually adds to the kind of Anglo-male sacrifice narrative that has bogged down a lot of Titanic historiography. This idea that J.J. Astor and other wealthy white men like him, like Guggenheim, George Widener, are they've got their cigarette and their brandy in hand at the end and they're standing on the deck going down bravely. Helen said, quote, to dwell upon them, and she means these first-class males, only sickens the heart with the realization of how they've perished. But she dwelled on them in her writing. In fairness, this is the world she knew on the ship, so I get it. But it's still problematic. And it's mostly problematic in the context as we look back on her role as a suffragist. Because after the sinking, as many historians have pointed out very astutely, traditionalists, anti-feminists, anti-suffragists, a lot of men used the, the Titanic disaster as some sort of twisted proof in their minds that the natural order of the universe was divided along these gendered lines. The brave men going down with the ship, sacrificing for the women who were put off in boats, that as much as women desired equal rights, the disaster must be some sort of guttural return to a natural order. Some religious leaders even used the Strauss's story that Ida, that Ida had stayed nobly behind with Isidore Strauss to question titanic widows as to how and why they so easily left their own husbands on board, implying some sort of inherent female weakness. Of course, we know now these ideas didn't prevail in society. And we know enough about Helen's larger story that that we shouldn't crucify her for one incident in her writing. But we do have to think about how she's used in Titanic histories as some bell of the ball with these men at her feet. I think some Titanic writers have included this about her and they're trying to be positive, they're trying to show her power, and they might mean well, but I personally think it's time to let all of that just go. Helen recovered from her broken ankle on a walking stick for about a year, and her son Harold fortunately recovered at the time from his injuries. Candy was transported straight from Carpathia to a hospital and then to another New York hospital to see him that April. Helen didn't publish another story about Titanic after the Collier's one. 
And she was actually seldom interviewed about it, seldom spoke about it publicly from what I could tell. She did seek $10,000 for personal injury and $4,600 for lost possessions in a class action lawsuit. And I've seen this mentioned negatively in the timeline of her life, and I can't help but wonder if she would have received scrutiny for this if she was a male survivor. Just interesting to think about. In October of 1912, the epic book she'd been researching abroad was published, The Tapestry Book. This was a lavish work, 275 pages, 103 illustrations. This was Helen's passion project. She was obsessed with period textiles. She had visited museums and private collections all over the world, to study tapestries, draperies, ancient materials even. The book was a bestseller, and I don't know how much of that was because she had this very recent reputation as a Titanic survivor. It's definitely possible. I think that would have played into it, but I'm not sure. I know she was obviously incredibly well-known prior to Titanic as well, which is the whole point of what we're talking about. Her politically driven pursuits continued as well. In March of 1913, the day before the inauguration of Wilson, she wrote at the head of the National Woman Suffrage Association's Votes for Women Parade down Pennsylvania Avenue, right past the White House, straight up to the steps of Capitol Hill. So Helen and six others rode on horseback, and they led 10,000 other women that came from all over the country in This was one of the largest female emancipation demonstrations at that point to date. She was an organizer of fundraisers for the New York Home for Boys and for the Soldiers and Sailors Club. As World War I approached, her activism only kept growing. And it's here that her life intersects once again, unsurprisingly, with the historical narrative we think that we know, an ingrained one that is so macro, but when viewed through a life like Candy's becomes decidedly and movingly, I don't know if that's a word, but in a a moving fashion becomes decidedly micro. Through friends at the Italian embassy, Helen got an appointment to the Royal Italian Red Cross. And remember, she had had this love affair with the country of Italy already. So she began serving there in 1917. Helen was among a group of nurses dispatched to the front lines to take care of troops. Now keep in mind, Helen Candy is 59 years old at this point. So one brutal experience she recounted and understandably never let go. Uh, She and another nurse approached a young man lying near a dugout. He was heavily injured, but apparently at this point still alive. And when they tried to move him, his entire, I'm sorry for the graphic nature of this, his entire torso came apart from his legs. Drenched in blood, Candy wrote, we burst into tears and knelt in prayer at this boy's side. Helen also worked in hospitals in Rome and Milan, and it was in Milan that Helen assisted in the treatment of a young American ambulance driver riddled with wounds 
This was Ernest Hemingway, can you believe it, who would recount his wartime experiences in A Farewell to Arms, one of my favorite books of all time, I should say, a work which includes his romance with another volunteer nurse, Agnes von Karowski, who was one of Helen's young co-workers. She is on the front line of this moment with Hemingway. So here Helen is again at an absolute crux of the history of the 20th century. It's quite incredible. Helen endowed an emergency clinic in Italy. She purchased vehicles and supplies for uh, field hospitals, I should mention. And she remained in Europe after the armistice. She settled in Paris and served as a correspondent, as an editor for the New York Design Magazine Arts and Decoration. And before returning to America in 1920, she was decorated by the Royal Italian Red Cross for all of her work in Italy. Helen was in her 60s, but she actually preferred in some ways to move more at this point, from what I could tell. She moved away from an editorship at this point because she preferred to be traveling than being in an office. She went to Japan, China, Indonesia, Cambodia in a time that you have to remember, women women didn't typically travel alone. And if they did travel alone, they stayed on a very predictable path of European travel sites, tourist sites, hotels, or if they went somewhere like Egypt, where actually a lot of Titanic first-class passengers were coming from there in 1912. But there's a very specific sort of tourism um, trail that white people stayed on. Uh, But Helen wanted none of that. And in her sixth book, and her most known, I would argue, Encore the Magnificent, which is now a classic travelogue, and it's perhaps her greatest legacy. Helen wrote of the mysterious temples and palaces, hanging gardens, scripture, and stonework of the ancient city on the temple of Angkor Wat. Her travels there laid the groundwork for modern tourism in Cambodia. So here she is again on the very edge of this historical of, of a historical process, of a historical moment. On Candy's trips in 1922 and 1923, she was actually accompanied by her son, who, from what I read, I think she called Harry. And she trekked through very dangerous jungles. They did have guides. They had native guides, I should note. She rode atop an elephant that she named Effie. The ruins of Angkor Wat had only been known to Westerners for 50 years at this point, which is crazy. And they weren't explored and they hadn't been like photographed and studied much prior to what Helen's doing. She gave a private reading of Angkor the Magnificent to King George and Queen Mary, and she was decorated by the King of Cambodia in a native ceremony. And to be clear, this book is lauded for its writing, but also for its premise that Helen traveled through this part of Asia in the 1920s like I said, when it was unheard of. And her words are just as beautiful and humane now in the opinions of many experts. That's not me saying it, but that's what I've read from experts on this topic, that they're as relevant now as they were 
then. Sadly, Helen's son Harold died in 1925 at just age 38. When in the United States, she was often in D.C. or at her daughter's house in New York. She remained an activist, an advocate, and she also became a lecturer on her travels to Asia. Walter Lord was even aware in the 1950s of her place in this kind of long durée, so to speak, of global political history. Quote, as early as 1927, she was warning her listeners of the rising tide of anti-colonialism, he wrote. And this is so true. She was, once again, quite ahead of her time in her efforts to educate the public on the culture of a place like Cambodia and to speak of the ills of colonization. For a woman who began her young adulthood in the confines of New England's arguably stuffiest and most elite boarding schools, this was a far and wild place to have ended up. And even though we must acknowledge that Candy had a lot of money, that during her life, she inherited even more, like I said, as wealthy uh, relatives died, it is crucial to recognize her identity as a true adventurer. And the fact that she was a woman makes it even more important. In 1925, Candy was among the nine founding members of the Society of Women Geographers. In 1927, she published her seventh book, New Journeys in an Old Asia, on travels through Indochina, Bali, Siam, Bangkok, Singapore, Thailand. And this was the culmination of nearly two years of travel, accompanied by her friend, the artist Lucille Douglas, who did the etchings for the book. I admittedly don't know much about her. In 1934, Helen was 76 and was restless for Europe again, unsurprisingly, and wrote a series of National Geographic feature articles on the English countryside, on the Italian Riviera, on the coast of Normandy. But finally, by age 80, and only at age 80, as she became a bit physically weaker and her eyesight started to fail a little bit, she was increasingly dependent on her daughter, Edith, with whom she now lived. And in the summer of 1949, Helen, now 90 years old, went to the cottage in Maine she'd owned at that point for half a century. It is where she often retreated to write her books, where she contemplated her travels, and there, on August 23rd of 1949, is where she drew her final breath, surrounded by all the mementos of her life. If anything from her life inspired James Cameron, at least this is in my opinion, when he constructed the script for his movie and he envisioned the aesthetics of his characters, of his film, if anything did, it had to have been this, perhaps as an inspiration for Old Rose, content in a home filled with the photos of wild and wonderful travels, filled with the artifacts of a life lived to the absolute brim. In one of her last articles, Helen wrote that, quote, if I failed to obtain the house of dreams, I would say the quest alone had brought lasting joy. Helen's work, particularly Anchor the Magnificent, have been republished as recently as 2008, and not just on the weight of her reputation as a Titanic survivor. 
A few weeks ago, Chelsea Picard and I spoke about Titanic and fiction. And in the midst of that conversation, Chelsea made an excellent point about the lives of Titanic survivors, that many of them in the historical narrative, they just don't exist until April of 1912, and then they disappear again after. Chelsea even mentioned the life of one of Titanic's female crew, a woman named Evelyn Marsden, and how she'd accomplished more after Titanic than before. But on her grave, it says Titanic survivor. In fact, as it turns out, her grave lay unmarked until the year 2000. Helen Candy does have a marked grave. She is buried in the First Parish Cemetery, York Village, York County, Maine. And from photos of it online, it seems as though her marker is actually rather plain, though. Just her name and her dates. No Titanic, but also doesn't seem to be anything else. She is too neutral in her resting place, in my opinion, too plain. For a woman whose life was so interesting that her experiences on Titanic, on the most ill-fated, written-about, studied ship of the century, perhaps of all time, proved one of the least interesting things about her. And this got me thinking about a lot. There were about 20 different other tangents I could have taken in this episode. It's an important history of women's suffrage here. There is an important history of just political movements in the early 20th century here. But I I found myself at the end of this episode thinking about Titanic descendants and how, you know, maybe some of the story we can get of survivors is from actual family stories, whether it's family Bibles and written documents, or whether it's what stories have been passed down in a family about those people. And I started to think like, she had two, like Helen, for example, had two children, she had at least one grandchild. There are descendants of her and her family that are among us. And I would, you know, be amazing to talk to one of them and find out not only how Titanic played into the narrative of how she spoke about her own life and how it affected the family, but just in terms of everything else that she did too. So anyway, I I haven't really thought about Titanic descendants yet in the process of making this podcast, which is weird, I know, but I haven't really. I've been so deep in research that's not something that's been on my brain, but it is now. And I I want to say that if you are by any chance a Titanic descendant of either a survivor or of someone who didn't make it, and you are listening, you've somehow found this podcast, and you have something to say, or you'd like to share a story, or you would perhaps consider coming on the show to talk about these issues, to talk about memory and some more thematic parts about it as well, please message me. (laughs) Please get in touch with me. I would love that. It's a thread I would love to pull on. All right. So some housekeeping. I would like to thank again the Patreon members that have joined so far. I would love to thank Shirley, Stephen, Bob, and Anna. I just want to, I've thanked you before, but I want to thank you again. It's incredible. 
and your support is very meaningful to me. And if you are someone who could help support the show by pledging a few dollars a month and these this money goes directly into the podcast for hosting fees, for website fees, for equipment, things like that. It goes directly into it, just so you know. Uh, but if you are, it is patreon.com backslash pod. just if you're able. And uh, I am doing a series of bonus episodes that will be only posted on Patreon for members who join at any tier. And the first bonus episode will be this week. So I'm super excited. I did a little poll and a few of y'all voted. And the first bonus episode is going to be on some of the other cooks and bakers and chefs that were in the kitchens on Titanic. I'm excited to do that. Another great way to support the show is to rate and review on Apple if you have a couple of extra minutes. Like I've mentioned before, those reviews really help the visibility of the pod just on Apple. And in general, fortunately, that's how these things work. You know, it's it's all a sort of algorithm, but it really does help. But only do it if it's something that you feel good about. You know, of course, it's I can't expect that from anybody, but I did want to mention that as well. The listenership is growing every week, guys. It's really fun. It's really encouraging. It's really amazing. I'm incredibly grateful that you're listening. I I, Every week I hear from almost a dozen of you (laughs) via email uh, and it's episode ideas. It's just saying, hey, I'm listening and, you know, I've been thinking more about, you know, fill in the blank and it's suggestions for the Titanic on film series. It's just, it's great. It's a dialogue. Just want to hear from you. So always feel free to do that. It's great. I also want to do what I did a few weeks ago, and I'm going to do it, you know, every few episodes. I'd love to include a couple of podcast recommendations, just podcasts that I've been listening to that have nothing to do with Titanic, but I think it's really important for the podcast community to support one another and this is a way that we can do that. I, If you follow me on Instagram, it's no secret that I am a huge I Love Lucy person. I have been following just the resurgence and the, and the interest in the history of her. There's a new movie coming out. There's some podcasts that have just started up. And one of them is The Ricardo Project, which is hosted by a woman in Brooklyn. And she just goes episode by episode of the show. But she is uh, she's sort of an, it seems like she's been trained in, has gone to school for kind of understanding the technical aspects of comedy. And she also has a really great handle on the social history of the 1950s when Lucy aired. So it's a great sort of historicizing of each episode. And it's really entertaining. If you're a Lucy person, highly recommend that. That's called The Ricardo Project. And if you are a Lucy person, also you should be listening to a podcast called The Plot Thickens, which is run by Turner Classic Movies. And every year they do a different uh, they feature a different person or a different story. So it's sort of a serial podcast, but currently they're doing a series on Lucy and it's incredible. So if you're a Lucy person or just, you know, a history of television person, it's, it's a great one to be following as well. And speaking of history of film and television, if you are a history of film person, you probably have already heard of this podcast because it's been around for a while now, but one called You Must Remember This 
and it's hosted by a fantastic film historian named Karina Longworth. Highly, highly recommend that as well. Some of her earlier seasons are uh, each episode is standalone about a, a interesting or controversial part of Hollywood history or people. Um, and then lately over the last couple of years, she's been doing series. And the one right now, I believe, is on Sammy Davis Jr., and Dean Martin. So I highly recommend that. She did an amazing series on Polly Platt, the producer Polly Platt. Oh, just incredible. And talk about issues of feminism and the history of women in Hollywood. Fantastic. So those are just a few. I have a huge interest in the in the history of film and television. So those have been exciting in my ears lately. All right. I believe that's it. Twitter, Unsinkable Pod. Instagram, unsinkablepod. Email is unsinkablepod at gmail.com. Moving into the holidays, there will likely be a little bit of an unsinkable hiatus. I have two small children and the Christmas season is um, madness, (laughs) absolutely madness. And also they are going to be out of school for a huge chunk of late December. And that means that I do not get to work as much. So I'll announce it on social media and I'll also let you know in the next episode, but there's going to be some sort of hiatus. The exciting thing is that I will be coming back from whatever that hiatus is with a four-part series on the 1997 movie. They will be regular episodes. There will be four of them. They will be long. They will be involved. I hope you're excited because I am. All right, more soon. Have a fantastic week. Uh, If you're a Patreon member or if you want to become one, there's a bonus episode that we'll be uh, posting on there in a couple of days too. All right, cheers, you guys. 